This episode of Historium is brought to you by Blueberry. Not the fruit, the podcast hosting service. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, now is the time, and Blueberry is what you should be using to host that podcast. Blueberry is the gold standard for podcast hosting and provides accurate stats, your own WordPress website, and an easy-to-use format for you to get your podcast out into the world. And right now, you can get your first month free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. That's orbitaljigsaw.com history. And start your journey into podcasting right Hello, history nerds. This is Nick. And this is Andy, and we host The Concession Stand, a podcast from two guys who work in the TV and movie business right here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to the Historium Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. In the very early 1900s, most people in the United States didn't interact with Native Americans any longer. Their perceptions of the First Peoples were shaped by Wild West shows, or these new things called motion pictures. Most Native Americans themselves had either died off from disease, moved to reservations, or had integrated into the society of the white man. So-called Wild Indians were just something that older frontiersmen talked about. But in 1911, a man walked out of isolation and into a strange new world. His name was Ishii. And he forced us to ask the question, what makes a person civilized? And what does that word even mean? I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 29, Last of His Kind. Despite Europeans' best attempts to exterminate native peoples in America, their efforts were dwarfed by the effects of disease. By the 19th century, when the idea of manifest destiny was urging Americans to go west, the tide of disease had already gone before them. In California, Spain had been putting up missions and forcing native peoples, the little that were left, to convert to Catholicism. This marks the beginning of a roughly 100-year period known as the California Genocide. Those natives that were not willing to give up their entire cultural heritage fled inland into the wilderness in what's now called the Long Retreat. Eventually, the Mexican Revolution placed California under the new government of Mexico. The Mexicans did away with all of those old missions as an act of liberation from Spain. They paid little attention to the natives, as they were all mostly in the foothills by now, a result of decades of their long retreat. But in 1846, a ragtag bunch of US settlers in California, along with some allied American military officers, began the Bear Flag Revolt. Within a few years, California was a new member of the United States. In 1849, various accounts of frontiersmen stumbling upon gold started the California Gold Rush. Hundreds of thousands of Americans headed west in search of quick fortunes. The native tribes had been fairly unaffected by the apathetic nature of the Mexican regime, but now, gold miners heading into the hills began running into what was left of these tribes, and they had nowhere else to go. By 1853, the ironically named Government Act for the Protection of Indians proclaimed that loitering and orphaned Indians had just as many rights as slaves. The new young California government issued bounties for Indian scalps. Some men who had come to California in search of fortune found it in the form of bounty hunting. The Yahi people, 
who were in the Sierra Nevada mountains near San Francisco, were the closest targets for many of these contract killers. Aya looked towards the entrance of the cave. She heard the white men coming. Perhaps they should have ran with the others instead of hiding here. It was too late now. Several dozen of the Yahi were hiding in the crevices at the end of the cave. The white man's foreign voices grew louder. She held her breath. A baby rested on her shoulder, and two younger Yahi girls clutched her legs beneath her. They all tried to breathe as quietly as they could. But she could tell that the white men were in the cave now. Aya saw a small light, which she believed to be one of the white man's small tobacco pipes. It moved closer. The children whimpered in fear. From the faint light of the cave opening, she could see a figure turn and call to others. They had been found out. Several more white men entered the cave. A teenage Yahi jumped out to try to distract the white men. For a brief moment, the whole cave was illuminated. Dozens of terrified Yahi faces were revealed and then gone. Aya felt her ears ringing. There was a thud as the young Yahi hit the ground. Tears began streaming down her face. This was the end. They were all going to meet their ancestors very soon. Flashes of light briefly illuminated the darkness. Screams echoed off the cave walls. Many Yahi fought back, but those were the first to go. Aya felt one of the girls clutching her legs suddenly go limp. Her baby on her shoulder erupted into wailing tears. The white man's rifles cut the Yahi to bits. Tears streamed from her face as she hit the floor. Aya sheltered her crying baby, knowing that the body must remain whole for it to reach the afterlife. She could hear nothing but ringing in her ears now. The flashes of light continued until the Yahi who had hid in the cave were no more. The Kingsley Cave Massacre that occurred right after the U.S. Civil War was just one of many slaughters authorized and paid for by the California state government. They paid $5 per Indian head, and in the last half of the 19th century, doled out hundreds of thousands of dollars to bounty hunters and mercenaries. Some prominent ranchers paid even more. By the turn of the century, Native Americans had all been ushered away to reservations or put into boarding schools to civilized them. Americans now learned of Native Americans and their traditions at Wild West shows and movie theaters, so in the eyes of Americans, these Native people had become mythic, tragic figures. In 1909, a man by the name of Alfred Krober became the director of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Krober was a modern man of science and sought to bring the field of anthropology to the world stage. The one thing that Krober sought most of all was an uncontaminated Indian, someone who, in his words, had not been corrupted by industrialization in any way. By this point in American history, Krober's hope for this uncontaminated man was now mostly regarded as fantasy. However, very soon, Dr. Alfred Krober would get his wish. He could smell the meat. It was unmistakable. His whole body yearned for it. He had done as well as he could hunting deer in the hills, but he was only so effective by himself. The massive forest fire from the year prior had decimated his usual foraging areas. He had been alone in the wilderness for three winters now, and his ribs, visible through his torso, bore witness to that fact. 
he could see several of the white man's buildings down the hill. It was close to where the long black smoke billowing demon would shoot through the trees. His long dark hair blew in the wind, the same wind that blew the smell of freshly cut meat to his finely tuned nostrils. He was on the edge of this tribal lands, but every member of the Yahi tribe were now dead and had been for some time. The weathered Yahi walked down the hill, out of his old world, and in to a new one. Three men were working at the slaughterhouse in Oroville, California, on the night of August 29, 1911. They were hard at work stripping and packing beef when they heard one of their dogs barking continuously. After several attempts at getting it to quiet down, they all went out to see what was going on. The dog was in the storehouse, barking at a man in the corner. One of the workers, armed with a rifle, told the man to come out. They noticed this man seemed to be wearing very little clothes. He looked terrified. They soon realized he spoke no English. They tried Spanish. No luck. One of the workers got on a horse to go get the sheriff. Within an hour, the authorities were there, but also at a loss. Not knowing what to do with this man, they eventually decided to take him to the Oroville County Jailhouse. In the morning, reporters heard of this nearly naked mystery man from the hills and flocked to the jail to see him. One of these reporters contacted the new Museum of Anthropology. The head of the museum, Alfred Krober, sent his second-in-command, T.T. Waterman, to investigate. Despite being in the same field and working closely together, Waterman and Krober could not be more different. Krober was cool, calm, and objective. One of his quotes is this, quote, Cultural history can only begin after the individual is totally subtracted, unquote. Waterman, on the other hand, was rough around the edges. He smoked, he drank, he cursed, and was very personable with people in his anthropological studies. Krober believed him the perfect man for the job. T.T. Waterman soon arrived in Oroville and headed straight for the jailhouse. He arrived to find the native man sitting peacefully in a cell reserved for the mentally insane. The jailer had said he had given him no trouble, and they mostly kept the cell door open. He mentioned the man seemed to love the donuts they had kept giving him. Waterman smiled warmly and sat down in the cell next to the man. His hair was singed on the end, a traditional tribal sign of mourning. Over the next few hours, the anthropologist went through various languages trying to communicate with him. But a breakthrough didn't come until Waterman said the word for yellow pine. The man's eyes widened, and he repeated the word. Waterman pointed to a tree outside, and the man seemingly understood. The language was Yana, a tribe to the north, but many words of the language were shared with the Yahi people who used to live nearby. However, it was believed that the Yahi died out years ago. Waterman was taken in by this man from the wilderness, and he sent a telegraph to Dr. Krober stating all he had learned. The next day was filled with this mystery man and Waterman using pantomime to try to communicate with each other the best they could. Krober sent a telegraph back, ordering Waterman to bring the man to the Berkeley Museum of Anthropology at once. Waterman dressed the native man in an ill-fitting suit and then went to the train station. The man was horrified when the train approached. He had seen them in the wilderness and assumed them to be a sort of unhinged demon. Through rugged pantomime, Waterman eventually convinced him otherwise. The Native American cautiously boarded the giant metal beast. That giant metal beast eventually arrived in San Francisco. By this point, the news of the wild man from the California hills had spread to various newspapers throughout the city. 
reporters ran stories with titles like Scientists Find Savage Stone Age Wild Man. A vaudeville showman located Waterman and the Indian as they arrived and offered $500 for the man to be in his shows. Waterman promptly declined. The modern world amazed the Native American. Waterman later said that the man's eyebrows scarcely moved from a raised position. He had been alone for so long, and now he was surrounded by more people than he could have ever imagined before. Eventually, they arrived at the Museum of Anthropology. Alfred Kroeber, typically the objective one, could hardly contain his excitement. The museum staff was nervous, but all of their fears dissipated as soon as the man arrived. Kroeber, with a better knowledge of the Yahi language, smiled at the man and introduced him as Ishi, the Yahi word for man. He instructed everyone else to do the same. The whole museum staff introduced themselves to the mild-mannered native man, and then Kroeber took him upstairs. He offered Ishii a room and spent several hours teaching a man who had spent most of his life sleeping in caves and makeshift shelters how a room even worked. Later, Waterman asked when they could figure out the man's real name. Kroeber said that they may never be able to. The Yahi tribal culture made it incredibly rude to ask someone's name. You had to ask another member of the tribe for their name. Since the man had no living tribe members, he would be known as Ishii, perhaps forever. The next day, Krober led Ishii to the entrance of the museum, where they were greeted by dozens of journalists and photographers. Ishii shielded his eyes from the strange flashes, while Krober quickly issued a plea for no-flash photography. The reporters were dying to know information about this man, Ishii, but Krober regretfully told them that it would take some time. The Yahi language was incredibly complex, and they had very little to go off of. Krober then sent Ishii for a physical evaluation with Dr. Saxton Pope, a doctor with the hospital connected to the museum. Pope was in awe of the physicality of Ishii's body, noting the extreme strength and versatility of his feet due to a lifetime of walking barefoot. Dr. Pope did his best to explain to Ishii that he was a huge bow and arrow enthusiast. Ishii seemed to understand. Krober assured Pope that there would be time for that later. For now, they had to figure out how to communicate with him. Remember, Krober viewed Ishii as an uncontaminated man, and the longer that he was in the modern world, the more contaminated by society he would become. Over the next week, Krober and Ishii worked hard trying to translate his languages. Krober brought in linguists and even a Native American from the Yana, a sister tribe of Ishii's Yahi. However, the work was slow and difficult. The linguist told Krober that this may take a while. During a photo shoot for the museum, Ishii was given various animal skins to wear. He was confused, as neither he nor his tribe ever wore anything of the sort. It was merely the white man's perception of what an Indian was. So, he elected to take the pictures in his oversized slacks. Ishii got along so well with everyone at the museum that Krober moved some funds around to make Ishii his official research assistant. By this point, Ishii was beginning to figure out several English words, and he accepted. Ishii worked long hours with linguists to try to discern the Yahi language, but when he wasn't working, Krober took him throughout San Francisco. Krober and Ishii went to the bustling Market Square and rode trolley cars throughout the city. Ishii laughed quite frequently. They eventually ended up at Baker Beach, and Ishii looked out at the spot where the Golden Gate Bridge would soon be decades later. 
He was stunned by the sheer amount of people moving about on the beach in their colorful dresses and suits. Many white people, he said to Krober, who laughed and agreed. Ishii spent much of his time storing and moving various artifacts from Native American cultures, including his own. What a strange feeling it must have been to have been taken in by a museum and given a job, but be required to work with thousands of artifacts of dead cultures, one of which was your own. We'll never know how it made Ishii feel, but he sure didn't show many negative emotions about it. Everyone who met him absolutely adored him. A year had passed since Ishii had wandered out of the California wilderness and into the world of the white man. He was now training Dr. Pope in the ways of Yahi archery, and regularly having dinner with the Waterman family. Krober and Ishii, despite having radically different backgrounds, became very good friends. They were making progress with the language, but Ishii still refused to talk about what had happened to his tribe and how he ended up alone for all those years. Ishii was incredibly adept at making arrows and arrowheads, and because of this, he often worked as a living exhibit in the Museum of Anthropology. Children would sit around Ishii fascinated as he made arrowheads out of stones or coke bottles or whatever the children had brought him that day. He smiled the whole time. Ishii was so popular that he nearly doubled the museum's attendance in just one year. However, all of these interactions with the public came with a price for Ishii. He was often very sick from various diseases that he had no natural immunity to. He was in the hospital with Dr. Pope frequently and became very familiar with the hospital staff. He would often walk the halls, visiting patients while singing traditional Yahi healing songs. Because of his constant friendly face and compassionate bedside manner, he was affectionately referred to as Dr. Ishii. When Ishii was not sick, he became more and more independent. He learned to ride the city trolleys and loved playing with children in the park near the museum. Ishii became famous throughout San Francisco. He even received several marriage proposals, and several showmen offered to take him on tour. He declined all offers, saying he liked his life as it was at the museum. While working with Krober, Ishii loved both cameras and photographs, and how they could preserve images and sounds forever. He recorded several songs and stories of the Yahi people, and loved to listen to himself sing. Here's a sample of the museum's recordings. After viewing so many of the wonders of the modern world, Ishii famously said, White man is very clever, but not wise. In 1914, the United States Secretary of the Interior visited Ishii at the Museum of Anthropology. He told Ishii that he could go live with other native peoples on a reservation, or return to the wild, and that he was not required to stay here. Ishii responded strongly that he would like to remain where he was. During this time, he would live with the Waterman family for long stretches, and they considered Ishii part of the family. T.T. Waterman is quoted as saying, quote, Ishii convinced me that there is such a thing as gentlemanliness, which lives outside of all training. It is an expressing purely of inward spirit. He had an inborn considerateness that surpassed all of civilization's training. Unquote. Despite Ishii's strong relationship with Krober and Waterman, he still would not open up about his past. Krober would mention atrocities and massacres that he studied, 
and tried to interpret Ishii's facial expressions to determine the truth. Krober continually asked if they could make an expedition to his homeland. Finally, in 1914, Ishii agreed. Ishii, Krober, Dr. Pope, and Dr. Pope's son set off for the California wilderness. When they reached the California foothills, a representative from a local power company brought hundreds of Yahi artifacts that they had taken from a camp which they had thought was abandoned. Ishii stated that this was the main reason that the few members of the Yahi that were left had to flee for the last time. However, Ishii showed no ill will, and Krober had the artifacts sent to the museum to be preserved. The group followed Ishii into the hills, wondering what this place that was hidden from civilization for all this time looked like. After a few days, they arrived. Ishii referred to the area as Bear's Hideout because his ancestors had once killed the grizzly bear and buried it there. Bear's Hideout was a small ravine tucked beneath a hill. The small, carved-out valley provided almost complete cover from outside eyes. Piles of dead brush covered stone walls on each side of the ravine, making it nearly invisible to anyone who did not already know it was there. Ishii seemed nervous as they arrived. Krober told everyone to give him space, as he would be wary of the spirits that still walked there. Ishii showed the group the hidden spring in a rock crevice. He showed them how the last of the Yahi tribe would make their fires under the rock overhangs so the smoke would dissipate in the cracks and not be seen from the outside. Here, Ishii was the teacher. The last members of the Yahi tribe seemed to have taken painstaking effort to avoid detection. Soon, Ishii seemed to get very nervous and asked to be alone for some time. He went on a solitary walk while the others waited at the hideout. He returned a few hours later, with his demeanor completely changed. He was much more cheerful now, and stated that he had communed with his ancestors, and they had told him that they had found their way. With the spirits of his tribe now at rest, Ishii began opening up about the history of his tribe, the various massacres over the decades, and what led them to hide in this ravine for all those years. Krober and Waterman were getting mountains of anthropological information. Dr. Pope was also greatly enjoying himself. An avid outdoorsman and archer, Ishii took him and his son hunting in his ancestral lands. After spending hours trying to get a deer, Ishii asked Pope to stop smoking his pipe, saying that the deer could smell it. Pope did as he was told, and very soon after, Ishii found and killed a deer. Krober and Waterman both agreed that they had never seen Ishii so happy. After a few days, Ishii, Krober, Waterman, Dr. Pope, and his son began the journey home, carrying hundreds of Yahi artifacts and an immense knowledge of how the Yahi had lived. In Europe, the Great War raged. In Central America, the Panama Canal opened for the first time. In Northern California, Ishii returned to the Museum of Anthropology. By this point, he was a featured attraction gathering guests from across the United States. Throughout 1915, some of the best linguists in the country came to work with Ishii and were in the process of transcribing the entire Yahi language. Ishii continued to help out in Dr. Pope's hospital and loved taking the trolley to various parks throughout San Francisco. However, in 1916, Ishii began to fall ill. He had struggled with illnesses throughout the past few years, but this time, it was different. Dr. Pope alerted Waterman and told him the severity of Ishii's illness. Waterman then sent a letter to Alfred Krober, who was at a conference in New York at the time. 
Krober sent a telegraph back and arranged a means of returning home. Meanwhile, Ishii's condition worsened. He was officially diagnosed with tuberculosis and lost 50 pounds in just a few weeks. Ishii's lack of natural immunity to these European diseases meant that his hospital bed slowly became his deathbed. Surrounded by Waterman and Pope, the men he viewed as family, Ishii died on March 25, 1916, just under five years since leaving the California wilderness. His final words were, You stay here. I go ahead. After Ishii's death, Krober, who knew full well of the Yahi tribal belief requiring a whole body to reach the land of the dead, sent a telegraph to Waterman outlining his fears of an autopsy. Quote, As for the disposal of the body, I must ask you, as my personal representative on the spot, to yield nothing at all under any circumstances to the doctors. If there is any talk about the interest of science, say from me that science can go to hell. We will stand by our friends. Unquote. But his telegraph arrived too late. Doctors had already performed an autopsy and had Ishii's brain removed for study. Upon hearing the news, Krober was devastated. During the funeral, he is quoted as saying, With Ishii's death, the Yahi have passed away. T.T. Waterman stated that Ishii was the best friend he had ever had. Ishii was cremated, and his remains were stored in a Native American pottery jar. Krober fought hard to get Ishii's brain from the hospital researchers. Once he did, he had it preserved and sent to the Smithsonian Institute. After Ishii's death, Alfred Krober continued to write about cultural anthropology and history. His works were required reading for anthropology students for quite some time. He spoke of Ishii very little, citing his immense sorrow involved with the subject. T.T. Waterman continued his work with archaeology and anthropology at the museum in Berkeley for decades. He spoke of Ishii often, and always quite fondly. Dr. Saxon Pope soon quit the field of medicine and put his archery skills to the test on full display. He popularized bow hunting for many Americans throughout the 1920s. Using Ishii's techniques, Pope made his own bow and arrows in Yellowstone National Park and killed a grizzly bear with them. Today, he is recognized as one of the fathers of American bow hunting. He mentioned Ishii frequently and attributed his success with bow hunting to him. In the year 2000, members of Ishii's sister tribe, the Yana, and many other Native American tribes led a campaign to retrieve Ishii's brain from the Smithsonian Institute. They were successful, and the brain was returned. The tribes ensured a proper ceremony for the last of Ishii's remains. The Yana tribe, the closest descendants of the Yahi, have over 150,000 descendants today. Ishii's flint napping technique for making arrows is still in use even today. Ishii's work with the Museum of Anthropology is often considered the Rosetta Stone of Native American toolmaking. Ishii represents an interesting cross-section of the United States and Native Americans. He was a product of Manifest Destiny, but a Yahi through and through. As Native Americans continued to be viewed as more ancient and more tragic figures, Ishii proved that the notion of civilized may not mean as much as we once thought. I would give anything to get inside Ishii's head, not as a doctor with a scalpel after his death, but to see the world as he saw it, full of wonder, 
surrounded by artifacts of dead civilizations, viewing a world of contradictions, a world that was clever, but not wise. Ishii often dealt with the complexities and contradictions of the modern world by simply laughing at them. I think we could all learn something from that. Ishii may have been the last of his kind, but he was a first among men. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. I grew up in California, and in grade school when we were learning about California history, Spanish missions, and the gold rush, we never talked about Ishii. We also never talked about the atrocities committed by Californians that were paid for by the state government. Maybe they thought it would have troubled us youngsters, but maybe it should have. If you were interested in more information about this story, I implore you to simply look up pictures of Ishii online. There's hundreds of them, and they're exceptional. There's something about the way he looks in a baggy suit that adds something that I can't put visually in podcast form. If you're a fan of Historium, you can follow it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One way to support the show is by picking up some sweet Historium merch on orbitaljigsaw.com. Another way is becoming a patron on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.